You can take your copy of God's Word and find Hebrews chapter 4. We will specifically be looking at verses 14 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, 2020 has been quite a year. The circumstances we've gone through this year have been trying for us all in one way or another. And one reason it has been trying is because whether we like it or not, our circumstances have revealed our hearts. Maybe this year has revealed more sin than maybe we would have liked to have known we had. We are not as patient as we thought we were. We get angry pretty quick when we thought we were making some progress. We're not content. We complain more than we thought we did. I'm sure all of us can identify with one of these areas, if not a host of many others. But I wonder, as God has been revealing your sin to you, has God also been revealing the heart of Christ to you? In these times, have you seen the warmth and the depth of the heart of Christ? And we know by experience that at one time or another, the height and depth of our sin eclipses our view of Christ. We take ten looks at our sin and only one to Christ when we should be taking ten looks at Christ for that one look at our sin. And like us, the original readers of the book of Hebrews, they were also facing difficult circumstances. Many previously had experienced public persecution. Others were not persecuted, but they were partners with those who were persecuted. Some had their property stolen because of their faith. Some had been thrown in prison. None of them had been killed yet. When they received this letter, they were still being persecuted. Many were being thrown out of the Jewish institutions. And because of all of this, they were tempted to leave the faith, to fall back into unbelief, and to leave God's rest. So because of their circumstances, the author writes to reassure them that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. In the first three chapters, he makes the case that Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. And as we come to chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, this is a transition point in the book. The author begins to show them that Jesus is a better high priest 
than any priest that came from the line of Aaron. And as he begins to make his argument, we get a beautiful glimpse into the heart of Christ. In 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And for these four verses, verse 15 serves as the hinge on which the passage swings. So the theme of these three verses is that Christ sympathizing with us is the ground for our holding fast our confession and drawing near to the throne of grace with confidence. First, we see in verse 14 the transcendence of Christ. Notice how the author starts, since then we have a great high priest. This is reality. It's not a metaphor. This is real. We have a great high priest. And Jesus is not just our high priest. He is our great high priest. And the author previously mentioned the priestly office of Christ in chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Since then, something here is different. Something here is better about this great high priest compared to the high priest of the Old Testament. Jesus, our great high priest, he passed through the heavens. This reminds us of chapter 1, verse 3, when the author wrote, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. At this moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to intercede for us. Jesus is praying for you, Christian, right now. After his work of atonement, Jesus went back to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the transcendent Son of God. Therefore, Jesus is better than any high priest before him. And this is such a majestic view of Christ, passed through the heavens. He is the Son of God. He is true God of true God. He always has been, he is, and he always will be God. So we see the deity of Christ in his transcendence. But then we come to verse 15. And I want you to try to imagine that you're a member of the church that first received this letter. Hebrews may have been a sermon. And imagine you are sitting and you're listening to it being preached, much like you are right now. And the preacher just gave this majestic view of Christ in, verses, in verse 14. Imagine your heart is soaring. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, Jesus really is better. I don't know why I ever gave thought to leaving the faith. 
He's transcendent. He passed through the heavens. He's the Son of God. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. But the sermon doesn't stop there. The preacher goes on to his next sentence, and he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Your mind immediately goes back to the mention of the great high priest in the previous verse and what the preacher said earlier in chapter 2. And you think for a moment, and then you're surprised and maybe a little shocked at what the preacher just said. Jesus, your great high priest, can and does sympathize with you and your weaknesses. The second person of the Trinity, the transcendent Son of God, sympathizes with you. And you didn't think this was possible, but all of a sudden you find that you are even more astonished by Christ after this than you were from the previous sentence. How can this be? How can Jesus sympathize with me? Why would he want to sympathize with me? This verse reveals to us the heart of Christ. The transcendent Son of God came to us. He took on our flesh. He came and made it possible for us to approach God because he approached us. We just read earlier in the letter, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus came and took on our flesh and our blood. So in these two verses, we see the person of Christ with his two natures, his deity in verse 14 and his humanity in verse 15. But we have to ask ourselves a question here. How can Jesus sympathize with us in our weaknesses? He's God after all, right? God is not weak. God never grows tired. God never grows weary. There's nothing weak about God. But us, us creatures, humans, we're weak. Jesus came and experienced our human weakness. You got hungry. You got tired. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus mourned at the unbelief of Jerusalem. Jesus knew the pain of being betrayed by someone close to him. On the cross, as he's dying, we see Jesus' concern for his own mother, making sure that she is taken care of. Jesus came and was identified with the people the Father gave to him before the foundation of the world. This is the weakness the author is referring to. We're weak in our humanity. The King James Version is helpful here and also has beautiful language for we have not 
and high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So before we look at what it means that Jesus sympathizes with us, why does the passage say Jesus can sympathize with us? Well, it tells us our great high priest was tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sin. Jesus faced temptation to sin. Looking back to 2.18 again, we read, For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If we were to go to one chapter later, chapter 5, verse 8, we read, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus faced temptation to sin while on this earth. And because of that, he can and he does sympathize with us. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke 4, Luke chapter 4, no doubt a familiar passage for most of us. This is Luke's account of the temptation of Christ. And in Luke 4, we get one glimpse into the temptation of Christ. In Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on your hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, until an opportune time. So after his baptism, the Gospel of Mark tells us that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Luke tells us that Jesus returned from, from the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for four days. And at the end of these 40 days of fasting and temptation, Satan tempts Jesus with a frightening onslaught. Satan tempted Jesus to doubt that God's love. Why does your father have you out in the wilderness? Not eating. He, Satan tempted Christ to doubt God's plan. I know you're going to get all authority, Jesus, but why don't you just worship me? Worship me, and I'll give it to you. Why go through all this? Death. 
everything you're going through. Just worship me. Easy. Easy peasy. It's all yours. I'll give it to you. Satan tempted Christ to try to trust God presumptuously. Just jump. He'll send his angels. Go ahead. It'll be all right. Fierce temptation. But if you ever stop to ask yourself, how did Jesus face temptation? Did he face temptation as God or as man? And if James is correct when he writes, God cannot be tempted with evil, and it's scripture, so we know James is right, then Jesus was not tempted as God, but in his humanity. Luke gives us a clue that Jesus faced temptation as man when he says he was hungry. Matthew's account further adds to this point in 4.11 when he writes, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We're not told exactly how the angels ministered to Jesus, but it is a good inference that surely they brought him food. So Jesus sympathizes with us in temptation because he was tempted in his humanity. And this isn't just the only account of Jesus being tempted. He was tempted throughout his life. At the end of his account, Dr. Luke tells us, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. More was coming. Jesus was going to face more temptation. We see in Matthew that after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die and that he would rise again. You remember what Peter said? Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But do you remember how Jesus responded? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This was a temptation from Satan coming through Peter. Jesus is a living example of what James says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He left until an opportune time. We can also glean one more truth about Jesus sympathizing with us from Luke's account. From verse 1, first we see that Jesus returned from the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit. In the next phrase, he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. The New American Standard translates this phrase as Jesus was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus was tempted in his humanity, but he was filled with the Spirit. I found this quote helpful, and I thought it might help you as well. Jesus lived his entire life totally filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit. He was, in, in his humanity, fully yielded to the Spirit's control, having voluntarily set aside the use of his divine attributes. That's from John MacArthur. So Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we need to admit, as we look at Luke 4, that our temptation is a little bit different. We're not the Messiah. We're not the Son of God. But we are tempted to sin, as Jesus was. 
And we fight temptation the same way he did, by being filled with the Holy Spirit and using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But he didn't sin. He never gave in. Never gave up. But just because he did not sin, that does not lessen the intensity of the temptation. It was real. It was intense. Jesus suffered when tempted. So Jesus can sympathize with us because he faced real, intense temptation as we do. And because of this, he can help those who are being tempted. But what does it mean that Jesus sympathizes with us? Well, at minimum, it means Jesus sticks with us. Jesus sticks with us in our weaknesses, even when we sin. Jesus doesn't run away from us. He sticks with us. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan, in his book, The Heart of Christ, which is just about verse 15 of chapter 4, he writes that this word sympathize means to suffer with us until we are relieved. Jesus suffers with us until we are relieved. Jesus is a co-sufferer with us. So when we feel pain and temptation, Jesus feels it. He's with us. When we suffer, Jesus does not grow cold and detached. He pursues us even more because he suffered while being tempted. And if we're all honest, I think we would admit this may not be how we normally view Jesus when we're tempted. We think when the going gets rough, Jesus is on his way out. After all, We've seen it happen in other relationships. We've shared sin struggles with another brother or sister in Christ, and they became cool. Eventually, they stopped talking to us. When we needed them most, when we were struggling the most, we lost the relationship when things got tough. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, writes, listen to this, if you are in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrows will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. This is Christ's heart for you. If you are in Christ, this is Christ's heart. It's his disposition toward you. When you commit that sin again and you confess it to Christ again, he's already running to you. He's not running away from you. He's running to you. When you are in the pit of temptation and sin again, Jesus does not look down from heaven and tell you, hey, stiff upper lip. Keep trying. 
Work your hardest. No. Jesus, he comes into the pit with you. And he brings you out of the pit. You're not the one getting yourself out of the pit. He is. Is this your view of Christ? Do you view him as being gentle and lowly with you in your sin and temptation? Or do you view him as brutal and ready to break you? Jesus has real compassion for you. This is not a metaphor. The author is not saying we can compare our great high priest to this. He is saying Jesus does sympathize with you. He suffers with you. He sticks with you. And he will until the end of your time on earth and for all eternity. You know, last night before bed, I was reading The Girl is a, a Book. I believe it's called The Friend Who Forgives. Carson will tell me if I'm wrong later because it's one of her favorite books. And it's about Peter's denial of Christ. Man, if we don't have a living picture of Jesus sticking with someone, is it not Peter? Oh, Peter, it seems to constantly stick his foot in his mouth. He's constantly messing up. We just looked at Peter's reaction to Jesus when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. Peter's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Then we read later in the gospel accounts that Jesus tells Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. What's Peter say? Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Not me. I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. Well, we know how the story ends. Peter was weak. A young girl asked him a question. I imagine her being about Carson's age. Saying, hey, you know Jesus, don't you? No, I don't. Come on. Who do you think I am? I don't know Jesus. But do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when he told Peter that he would deny him? I've prayed for you. Wow. Jesus prayed for Peter in that. And then we come to the Gospel of John. And Jesus is making fish on the beach. And Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus stuck with him. Jesus didn't leave him. He didn't discard him. He stuck with him. John Owen beautifully states this truth when he wrote that Christ is inclined from his own heart and affections to give us help and relief. And he is inwardly moved during our sufferings and trials with a sense and fellow feeling of them. What trials are you facing right now? What temptation are you feeling right now? What temptation are you facing right now? Where do you feel the weakest right now? According to this glorious verse, Jesus is with you. 
He sticks with you. He experienced your weakness. Because of this, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Come to the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Jesus is your great high priest. Jesus sympathizes with you. We see the same word in Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can pray. We can come to the throne of grace because of Christ. Jesus is the reason that we're welcome there. So we don't come in with confidence in ourselves. Ah, look at me. I'm at the throne of grace looking pretty good. No. It's because of Christ that you are there. It is because of Christ that you are welcome there. And what happens when we draw near to the throne of grace? We receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. If these past few months have taught you anything, I hope that it has been that we continually live in the realm of our time of need. It's so easy to think we are self-sufficient and that we can live the Christian life on our own. But brothers and sisters, there is never a waking moment of our lives when we are not needy. We should not be afraid to admit that. God created us to need Him. God is the only person in the universe who is not needy. We see our desperate need for the mercy and grace of God. Our great need drives us even deeper into the heart of Christ. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He is the friend that will stick closer than a brother. And because of him, you should come often to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in your time of need. And it's because of Christ, going back to verse 14, that we can hold fast our confession, the faith that we profess. Here's an old hymn, gospel song, titled, No One Understands Like Jesus. I'd like to read a few verses and we'll conclude. No one understands like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. Meet him at the throne of mercy. He is waiting for you there. No one understands like Jesus. Every woe he sees and feels. Tenderly he whispers comfort. And the broken heart he heals. No one understands like Jesus. When the foes of life assail, you should never be discouraged. Jesus cares and will not fail.